0: We welcome you to 2022 and the latest episode of the X Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney Howell. Now, if you'll recall to last month's episode, we've been starting to share some post-swine survivability conference recaps. So if you haven't listened to episode seven, I would highly encourage you to go back and check that episode out before diving into today's. To share a quick update from last month, back in October of 2021 was the International Conference on Pig Survivability held in Omaha, Nebraska. Nearly 500 folks attended the two-day conference, listening to various speakers and sharing ideas on how to move the needle when it comes to swine survivability. For the remainder of Season 2, we'll be bringing you specific speaker recaps, but today we wanted to hear a few high-level summaries that happened at the end of the two days, about ideas in the swine industry, we're sharing. We start with day number one, and Dr. Noel Williams.
1: The title of my presentation is "What did you or we hear today?" And all I can do is tell you what I heard today. I don't know what you heard, but I'm going to try and be concise because I know it's been a long day. But I'll tell you what I heard and. A lot of good information, a lot that was thrown at us. Very from the beginning, you know, when, and when Dr. Ross talked about how much the industry has changed since 1970 to 2020, 50 years, and that I'm 50, almost 54, so about in my lifetime, that we've increased our production by 200% when he measured that in pounds per sow. Okay, and I think if you listen to Dr. Ransom, he says we gotta do that again in 30 years to feed the population of the world, you know? And so remarkable changes. And I think if, you know, people back in 1970, they probably didn't think that they were gonna double pounds per sow per year, uh, 200%, but the people that were working on it were people like us. Animal scientists, geneticists, veterinarians that were working on the problems of the day with a goal to continually improve what they did because they loved what they did. And everybody in this room does that. And we do have a noble goal and a noble task to feed the world 30, 35 years from now. And we do have to improve our efficiency and we do have to improve our production. So how are we going to do that? And, you know, Dr. Ron talked about the trends In our current production, a great talk, and he's always done a great job of doing that. You know, he had his family here. I'm proud to say I have a couple of my sons here. Don't tell your mom that he gave his wife flowers, so (laughs) I don't get in trouble there. But you know, he he always does a good job of distilling down what some of the issues we have. You know, I think one of the questions that struck me, or the point was we should be measuring uh, pigs per sow per lifetime, right? Well, if you're losing 47% between P0 and P2, I don't think you need to be worrying about that. You need to be worrying about getting better because it's not very good. Right? And he talked about some of the things that are issues that we face. And, you know, we talked a lot the last couple of years about prolapses, but the thing that struck me was, was lameness, is bigger issue today than prolapses and we have not gotten any better. You know, we're losing more females for lameness and we've got to get better at guilt development. You know, and I'm saying we, I'm saying myself, our system, we've got to get better at guilt development. We've got to keep those sows within the herd to P2. So get them to P2. After that, their pigs per sow per lifetime be good, right, Ron? You know, and that's what we got to focus on you know, the things that he talked about in terms of pre-weaning mortality uh, echoed through from some of the other presentations. And exactly what Dr. Ransom said, it is embarrassing to say that we lose 35% of our animals from a total born to market. It's unacceptable. And again, I'm not chastising anybody. It's unacceptable for our system. It's unacceptable for everybody. Okay? I think... Dr. Ron did a great job of laying out some of the issues, and he had some solutions too. So I appreciated that some of his concepts around, you know, the the structure, the lameness, the hoof quality, some of those things, the early feeding of of sows during that 150 or 100 days to 120 days uh, in and around farrowing, uh, some good concepts. Now we've got to implement those and improve on that. Okay. I think uh, I don't know if Bill is still here. Of course, yeah, there he is in the back. Uh, of course, Bill and I worked together for 10 years. A great mentor did a tremendous amount uh, for me. There are other genetic companies within the room. I saw uh, Dr. Rathje and, and some of those guys. But it, you know, that I think as I listen to him from a genetic standpoint and a great job comparing the differences uh, from country to country and the challenges that we face, you know, and I think if you distill that down within North America, each system has their own individual challenges that they face, right? You, know, you talked about the differences between Europe and North America, China with ASF. You know, you've got to look at your own individual system and one, measure what those numbers are. And then secondly, figure out what your individual challenges are. And I think you did a, a tremendous job of, of the differences uh, across the countries. And, you know, Bill's always been forthright they don't have a perfect genetics they're going to continue to work on it a lot of tools and a lot of technology i think the thing that strikes me is there's always that balance between genetic improvement best nutrition best management and there's certain times over the course of our industry that we get out of great scientific term here out of whack we may lead ourselves on genetics sometimes we may lead ourselves on nutrition or management And there's some things in and around there that he talked about specifically with a sow. Body condition. Maybe our paradigms are not wrong or not right, you know, in and around what that condition should look like. Maybe there's some nutritional things. There's some management things. But obviously there's an issue and we've got to focus on each and every one of those components. But we have to continue to drive genetic improvement to double our pounds per sow per year 35 years from now. We have to. And we as managers, we as nutritionists, gotta keep up with that and stay in sync with that to continue to move forward. Dr. Schultz talking about the economics of mortality, a good tool there to utilize. And again, that's, that's different for every system. Uh, you know, but I think our goal is to keep every pig alive. You know, how you look at that from an economic uh, standpoint, uh, it's it, and what you invest, but our goal is, as stewards of animals animal husbandry is to keep every animal alive. Now, we have to run a business, we have to be profitable, but that should be our goal you know, a, a good tool to you to look at what technologies you may pri- prioritize or focus after first, uh, but continue you know a good tool there from an economic standpoint. You know, Cassie, I'm not sure if she's still here. When she talked about regulatory and advocating for the future, you know, kind of tied in what Justin said when she was talking about the scientists in the room are going to go tell the regulators how wrong they are. And then they're, you know, she has to tell them, no, you got to be quiet. They are the regulators. They make the decision. The consumers, the, the regulatory body that we have to meet the needs of, right? It's frustrating. Sometimes we don't want to hear it. And we can cuss and discuss within this room about how wrong they are. But the reality is, they're the one buying the product. They're the one that's right. And we've got to change our business and change our paradigms of how we manage our system and what we invest in from a facility standpoint, from an animal standpoint, to meet their needs. And we just have to be cognizant of that. You know, after... Uh, lunch there, we got into some, some nuts and bolts of, of good take home things that we can utilize, uh, within our systems. You know, uh, worked with Gus and Troy. There's the guys at Pipestone for a long time. Great pig guys. You know, Gus gets a little bit excited. His accent comes out a little bit. But there, and I've known Gus and he used to, we used to work together at PIC. There's no better person a in a farrowing room and nobody more passionate about that and and he did a good job and had some some good information. I think the one thing that, as I looked at that, that he talked about is maybe the disconnect, he kind of said this at the end, disconnect of technology, what's really needed versus what people are forcing on us or say, this is what you should be using. And he was talking about the practicality in that, in and around uh, pre-weaning survivability. You know, he, I think the Talked about some different things to look at. You know, Mark Schwartz' presentation from the Lehman Conference, he referenced that. Uh, you know, something that looks a little crazy, but it looks like there's opportunity there. Uh, I think he did a good job of bringing out some, po- uh, uh, some points there. Uh, Chris, you know, we work closely with Chris. Some of the data that was utilized within that presentation would be from our system. You know, Chris has always done a good job of, of blending academia with with field research and some of the things that he had to, to offer to us from a practical standpoint uh, about how we can improve uh, wean to market mortality. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me was how we utilized our facility, how we load our barns, the sick pens, and the opportunity pens, and it's a pet peeve of mine, and he probably may have took that picture from our system with that one empty pen, and I'm like, ugh, that drives me crazy, right? I think it probably was ours, Chris. We probably did do that because he was in our nurseries a couple of weeks ago. But that, so, <laughs> but, but that's a pet peeve of mine. But it, you know, it's our responsibility as, as, as our group to make sure that we're not doing that. And you know, and 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 how those things happen in systems sometimes. You know, we uh, or I do uh, is. It's, the pot roast recipe, right? You guys ever heard this about the pot roast? And the first thing you do in this recipe is you cut off the ends of the pot roast. You put it in, you season it, you make the pot roast. So this young lady that was learning how to cook, uh, she asked her mom. She said, "Well, why do you cut off the ends? It's just wasteful. Why would you cut the ends of a pot roast off?" Her mom didn't know. She said that was a recipe. So then the grandma was still alive, and they asked the grandma. I don't know. That's what the recipe said. That's the way we've always done it. It's 50 years. It tastes good. The great grandma was still alive. They asked her and she said, well, that was the size of the pan we had. The pot roast was too big, so we had to cut the ends off. (laughs) But when you think about that, a lot of times that's how we get those types of things within our system, you know, is, is we, we just kind of always done that way or we just let it go or we let it slip and we really got to focus on that. You know, we talk about saving a percent mortality. What was it, Chris? Three quarters to one and a half percent if you got the square footage right. So that's a big deal. Okay. So make sure you don't have any pot roasts. Dr. Talbot, that was the first time I've ever heard her speak. You know, she was passionate about biosecurity, right? She was passionate. You could feel that. And what, what was her message there? We're going to get rid of PED. We're gonna eradicate PED. We're gonna do everything within our power to get it out of their system there in Manitoba. And, and excellent practical tips of how to do that, and I'm not gonna go into that, but you know, if, if I had to, to invite a speaker like Dr. Coleman said, to bring someone into your system, the passion that she talked about that, the desire that she had, that's what you wanna look for when you're talking about biosecurity. And then great techniques to go with it. But I mean, she's up, she's telling you, I'm going to get rid of PED. We're going to beat it down and we're going to get rid of it. You know, and, and the, and the, the, you could tell just from her passion, the things that she's done in her system, a tremendous presentation. And then the piece of people piece. And I was trying to write notes and I didn't turn around. Who made the comment on the 7% versus the 93% time spent on the labor? Who was it that said that? I could see. Oh, yeah. Great. Probably the best summary comment of the whole day. Right. And that's right. And I was marking down uh, how many times said people or implementation not in this uh, three speaker segmentation. It was 47 times. So you talk about the emphasis on people, you you know, but the speakers that did get their seven percent did a tremendous job. You know Valerie talking about um, you know the passion, uh, the personality, and, and finding that up out about your employees and the individual employees, and then how do you implement that on a team and implement that on a farm level w- w- was great. Doctor Prosmiller, I mean, you talk about a trainer now. How could you not be energized? You talk about adrenaline. You know it was four o'clock or whatever it was, and there was adrenaline flowing, right? Uh, a great speaker and again you know the the thing that struck me is what she the kill callers or risk killers whatever it was you know what I wrote down is I bet I'm going to go home and make sure we don't have any risk killers in our system <laughs> now we don't we don't utilize that that but you know that got there and, and I'm sure the systems she's worked with good systems I'm not being critical of it but I think what you got to do within your system within your business do you have any of those collars running around? And I'm using that figuratively, not, not the actual collar, but are there things that put that mentality within an employee or, or team member or person within your organization that's setting the wrong behavior, that's setting the wrong message? Okay. And create that culture of we're here to keep pigs alive and care for pigs. Okay. Just a tremendous job. And then, you know, Dr. Coleman, great job about the urgency. You know, and I think the the thing that, uh, you know, that, that that I took from that, uh, some excellent tips about pre-weaning mortality, uh, challenge yourself with numbers, challenge yourself with outside people. But he really talked about the structure that you have to create inside your business or your operation. You know, they say culture eats strategy for lunch. Well, structure eats culture for supper, right? If you don't have the right structure in place, You can say you have a good culture, but if you don't have the right structure in place to remove those obstacles from an ownership level, uh, to have that, you know, the supervisors to instill that culture, it's not going to happen. So you have to have the right structure in place, an excellent job there. And then, you know, Dr. Ransom talking about sustainability, ESG, you know, and those are things that are you know, difficult perhaps to talk to you, but he laid it out. That's the challenge in front of us, you know, and, and uh, that's a challenge that we have to face, but that's what we do. There's not anybody in here that's going to say that I'm going to do something bad for the environment, or I'm going to do bad to somebody from a per- people standpoint or community standpoint, from a social standpoint, or I'm going to create a governance that's bad, okay? Now, we may have a little bit diff- different definition of that, but that's something that's changing as well. So I, I really want to congratulate the entire committee that took the, put this pro, uh, program together. I think it hit on the tremendous things, and it, it was great. And So we've got to come back tomorrow. And I think the challenge that, that, I, that I wrote down to think about tomorrow is, one, obviously the people. You know, we talked a lot about today innovation. And so, you know, as you think about that and the challenge... How do we continue to create that innovation, uh, a mindset of innovation within our business, as well as the the application of that innovation? I think that's a challenge to come back. And then tomorrow's program is gonna be geared around discussion, right? So come prepared. In each one of these sessions, there's an open session to talk about failures, successes, transparency. We've always been good about that in this business but bring forth ideas to others within this group, to the people that are here from a university standpoint of ideas to create that innovation, to help us to continue to improve sustainability. So so think about tonight, uh, think about it in the morning, but become prepared to, to have that discussion, have an open discussion and try to get better to improve on a performance that we need to improve on.
0: Dr. Williams made some great points when it comes to general swine survivability there and helped us summarize day one of the conference, but we have more to cover. So let's turn it over to some of our other speakers as they share with us a recap of day two, starting off with Dr. Mike Tokash.
2: First off, as I start off, I, I really enjoyed this morning that it allowed us to highlight just a few of the graduate students and undergraduates that have been invo- involved in the, the projects. And I hope the, that you uh, got the, the same feeling as I did in terms of the quality of, of individuals that we're able to work with. And, and I think each, I, in the two sessions I was in, we saw six of the over 60, you know, students that have been involved in, in actually running projects as part of this, this grant. And I think that's been certainly one of the highlights for me as somebody at, at the university level watching that growth in those students. First on the pre-weaning survival session, just give you highlights for those that weren't in that uh, pre-weaning session. One of the grad student uh, projects was on providing enrichment, using a milky cheese flavor on ropes to, in, uh, to increase pig interaction with those ropes. It, it allowed them to do that and pull the piglets away from the udder in order to, from that day two to about six of after they were born, to try to reduce mortality. And they were able to successfully reduce mortality with that, an area that obviously we need to do more work on to try to before we take it out into, into practice. But I think uh, taking that into bigger numbers was certainly uh, worth looking at further. Also, the area in pre survival, there's a couple of nutrition trials. We ta- heard a little bit yesterday about feeding sows more frequently, and the work that uh, that Kia shared with us about how often we feed that sow you know, before they farrow, and whether we do them ad-lib or multiple meals per day, we're able to reduce the pre mortality and and farrowing assistance with more frequent feeding, as long as we don't feed them too much. And I think that's really the answer that, that comes out of that research, is, is feeding multiple times per day has been beneficial, Yeah, going to ad-libbing you cr- can create other issues, potentially. Essential fatty acid research has shown, and the research North Carolina State's done has shown the improvements in the summertime providing essential fatty acids through like soybean oil in order to improve subsequent reproductive performance. And the work that Julia shared with us showed that, that it, it didn't have an impact on subsequent reproductive performance in her trials, um, but it did increase weaning weights. And she provided uh, you know, a really nice, very large data set that we were able to see what the, the impact was on the uh, economic benefits of that fat addition on weaning weights and also Also, the fact that in her trials it did not impact the survival of the pigs having the different fatty acid profiles in the milk and the colostrum. And then some of the work that Purdue's done on getting pigs away from the back of the sow and to the udder showed very nice work about being able to get them to suckle quicker than if they were at the back of the sow and their temperature drop was less or they got their temperature to recover more quickly by getting them up near that, that sow and getting colostrum intake. An interesting one on some of Kara Stewart's ferroin induction work that I had never never really given much thought to was that it did increase the likelihood of those sows ferroin by day 115 which is the reason you do induction. But the downside of the induction was it decreased the duration of colostrum production. and I think that's a very interesting one when we talk about the need for getting colostrum intake into piglets and something we better think about when we're doing uh, ferroin induction. And also in Kara's uh, main presentation, The couple of big key points that came out of there was that there were 65 to 70% of the mortality is from pigs that are over one kilogram at birth. And so we think about those small pigs and that we, and certainly as a percentage of their population, they have the highest percent mortality. But if we look at the overall mortality of piglets before farrowing, the big majority of the overall mortality is still coming from those larger pigs. And 40% of, that, of their mortality is due to crushing. And so again, all the things that we know to do about reducing crushing in those first uh, 24 to 48 hours is what to save those big pigs. Also the uh, the work that shows that pigs are born to a variable size litter they have a much higher chance of dying than if they're born to a uniform size litter that really I think provides opportunities from the genetic selection standpoint she brought up the issues of potential vascularity in the placenta and uh, and also the selection for robustness and and uh, genetically I know we have a lot of things we have to select for but that that's a relatively easy one in terms of the variation in and piglet size at at birth to mix in many of the things that are being done on farms to reduce mortality she brought up the, the point that, that we don't have very good data to support a lot of the activities. Some of the excellent work that University of Illinois has done about drying piglets has shown that they were only able to reduce the mortality of the lightweight pigs when it was cold in the farrowing House. In a normal temperature, they had no impact on it. But I think she did also point out that, that uh, people doing other things to save pigs while they're there, and that's one of the things I think we keep finding in some of our research trials, is one of the reasons we may not find some of the significant effects that sometimes people think they're having or when they imp- implement some of these strategies is that we tend to have a lot of people there at the time when we're doing those trials, and we probably save some of the pigs in the other litters also that, that may not have been, been saved uh, if we weren't there doing it. I think probably the biggest thing that, that some of the discussion came out of there was that the technology that is now that we're able to track individual pigs is really going to help us in this overall pre-weaning mortality area. Not only tracking how those pigs live all the way to, to the end of the nursery, but but all the way to market weight is what impact do we really have on on uh, lifetime productivity and, and uh, on those pigs. The post-weaning area also had some uh, discussion about the nutritional enrichments, the post-wean mortality it was able to show that with mat feeding, with uh, large cubes, with biscuits, a number of different strategies to do sensory attractants to get pigs to the feeders, those all helped to reduce the weight loss of the pigs immediately after weaning, but they didn't change overall growth rate or feed efficiency of the pigs. You know, Body weight loss and fallout rate can be improved through strategic management. But there was more work again that needs to be taken to understand the long term impact and again the technology and individual pig tracking is really what's needed to be able to do that. Deb Murray finished up that session with a lot of practical thoughts on vaccination programs on the negatives of over medication of using too much antibiotics, about barn cleaning and biosecurity and water line cleaning. Many of the things that we obviously need to teach and verify that people are doing in the barns that we know will reduce disease issues. There, there was
1: a number. Thanks, Mike. I had the opportunity to sit on the um, sow mortality, breeding herd mortality presentation. Dr. Ross's graduate students, Jamie and Zoe, and again, I echo. Mike's comments about being able to hear the graduate student work and how invigorating that is to see the research that they've done and, and have them involved in the industry. But they did a great job of continuation of the work that Jason started with a with a POP study, uh, looking specifically at some of the changes in the microbiome in a control farm and a in a farm that had a higher incidence level of, of POP scores and perineal scores and, and being able to detect some differences between the two in terms of uh, changes in microbiome. And then their challenge now is to see if they can alter that microbiome. And with some some different uh, either nutritional stat- strategies or potentially antibiotic strategies to be able to evaluate that, see if they can change, and see ultimately if they can change uh, the incidence of pop. And I think uh, a tremendous model, good work that is has been has been done the incidence of pop, but also utilizing the perineal score to estimate that and predict that, which is is a very good predictor of it and then following that up with the microbiome work and now the application of that microbiome work. So that was that was good. It's good to see that, that basic research combined with a practical application. Just excellent work. Chris Rodemaker followed that up with a, a very practical talk, and I would encourage everyone to watch all the videos. But, you know, in terms of short-term things that you could do to potentially change breeding herd mortality, he was able to demonstrate over the course of about a three-month period, of some process changes, process allocation, time allocation within a sow farm, about a three and a half to four percent improvement in sow mortality by focus on individual care, but also really reprioritization and refocus how uh, the breeding, this was a gestation study, but how the, just a change in focus there, they, they've been able to demonstrate about a three and a half and four percent reduction in sow mortality uh, just by changing daily per, processes and really focusing on individual pig care. So that was good work. Dr. Dean followed that up with an excellent discussion of the frustrations associated with looking at sow breeding herd mortality. A good walk through from a uh, epidemiologic standpoint how frustrating it is and re-emphasizing the importance of collecting good data. Uh, you can only make good decisions when you have good data. Uh, some practical tips there. Really talked about lameness And one of his take-home messages was, uh, you can't just measure lameness on a dead sow. You need to identify it on a sow that survives as well. And so put lame or not lame uh, on every farrowing card, and you'll be able to collect better information and then look and see the impact on productivity as well as mortality. So that was a, a good presentation. I think one of the comments that he made that really hit home he said, What is finished when the lights are turned out at the end of the day or the end of the week? Okay. And he equated that to what chores have been done? What's the focus or priority on that farm when the lights go out? Okay. What have you got done? And he talked about have you individually cared for every sow? Have you treated every sow? So, again, focusing on your priorities, but really think of it when the lights go out, what have you accomplished from the day? And are you, are you doing the right things? And then uh, one other point on the studies that they did and demonstrated from the graduate student work was a study done in, in collaboration with a cactus group looking at BMD and potentially changing that microbiome and influencing prolapses. Did not have an impact on prolapses, but interestingly had a significant impact on, on stillborn. So I would encourage you to look at that, at that data. I uh, would also add the opportunity to sit down on the post-winning mortality from the finishing standpoint. Uh, two excellent Iowa State presentations. One, Edison from Iowa State looking at uh, some specific data sets, looking at predictors of growth finish mortality based upon sow herd status, different diseases, and other environmental impacts. And to me, I think, uh, you know, good data, if you have good data and a large data set, We've got the tools and application, uh, to be able to, to look at that and, and one, find out predictors of mortality. But, you know, a lot of things we've talked about over the last couple of days is where do we devote our resources? Where do we devote our capital? And what that data demonstrates, and that may be unique to one system, is, these are the areas that you need to focus on cuz these were the big predictors of grow finished mortality and i think the message is utilizing that type of data in that way it allows you to focus on that so uh you know good uh, a good model uh, that can be utilized in other systems as well uh dr Holkamp talked about uh, the importance of uh, finishing biosecurity and the impact that you know disease can have on finishing uh, mortality but also the impact that it has on sow farms. We talked about that yesterday with the veterinarian from Hi-Tech about how those growing pigs are incubators, I think is what she called them, and uh, improving grow finish biosecurity may have a direct impact on grow finish mortality, but also an impact on sow herd health, particularly if your sows are in that area. Then we got to hear Dr. Pillen talk about uh, his experiences in the industry. It's always uh, great to to hear, uh, you know, he, he talked about, and Brett used some examples of things that he talked about of his uh, 50-some-odd years in the industry. And One of the points he made, he, he had the 95-5 rule, and it really tied into what we've talked about the last couple of days. Because He's a veterinarian by training. He said, but 95% of it's the people or the processes or resources that we give to the people are the big impactors on mortality in this particular case. And so good to good to hear from him and his and his advice. And then in the open sessions, a good information exchange. I'd encourage you to listen to those both from a research idea perspective. But there was also some good practical tips during the discussion associated with both the sow mortality side as well as the grow finish side.
2: What I'm going to cover in just a, in a few slides here is to, to talk about three big areas trying to wrap up my thoughts on, on the area in terms of lowering mortality as an industry. First thing obviously is we want to implement what we know. So let's talk about what we know. Then what do we need to research that we don't know? And then uh, finally we talked, heard yesterday about some of this is do we need to change our paradigm in terms of are there new swine production models that we should be considering as an industry? So first, what do we know? Well, we all know that increasing birth weight increases survival. And it was very nice to hear uh, Bill Christensen talking about, and I know PIC has done an excellent job down this area, and I know a number of the genetic companies are, are realizing and are moving in the same direction in terms of that, that you know, increase increasing birth weight. The best way that we can do that is through our genetic selection. They have a much greater impact than what we can have as nutritionists. Yes, we can influence birth weight a little bit from the diet, but it's a very small impact as compared to what you can do with, with selection. Hey, Pigs need a minimum of 200 grams of colostrum intake. Kara Stewart challenged that a little bit in the session this morning, said that it probably should be closer to 300 grams of intake instead of 200. Um, but you can argue about that. But the, the reality is, is that we know that we need to get colostrum into those pigs um, or, or we're going to lose them very, very early in the, in the farrowing house. The causes of pre-weaning mortality haven't changed. That's probably the biggest thing. Yes, we have a lot more pigs today, but if you look at the causes of pre-weaning mortality in papers that were written in the 80s, they're the same causes of pre-weaning mortality as papers that are written with data from today. Okay, so The first 48 hours, 50% of pre-weaning mortality. Laid on, low viable and starvation is 76% of pre-weaning mortality. And so it's not very difficult to figure out where our target is at and where the emphasis needs to be placed in the farrowing House if we're going to reduce that number. Survival increases as weaning age increases to 24 days of age. That data is becoming more and more clear the more data sets we have. And some excellent, excellent work that Adam Mosier has done at Michigan State University to show the biological reasons why that occurs and shows that as you get those pigs up to 24 days of age, the reason that they have improved survival all the way out to market is because you fundamentally changed their intestine and how you can get pathogens across their intestine all the way to that pig gets to market. So we need to get pigs to at least 24 days of age as an industry. I know we've got a lot of reasons that people don't do that, but we need to get there. Mortality increases with increased stocking density. Chris Rodemaker showed that very nicely yesterday. And I think there's, very, there's a lo- relatively little of that data in the literature, but there's a, I know there's more of those data sets and, and production systems that have shown those kind of effects. It's real. It's believable. That's one of the areas where, where the stocking density and stocking correctly, we know that that can have an impact. And genetic selection, we all know this, genetic selection works. We get what we select for. And so if we keep selecting for increased growth and leanness and feed efficiency and don't put in the robustness traits, we're not going to improve robustness. If we don't improve the, the, select for reducing mortality, we're not going to get there. What else do we know? We know health is king. I mean, this is one married to a veterinarian, and I know she has a much bigger impact on the outcome of that farm than what I do as a nutritionist. I mean, that's just that's reality. Um, If the diseases come into that farm, there's not a lot that I can do to help keep those pigs alive in many cases as a nutritionist. The south farm source drives downstream mortality. That was just highlighted as what Noel was talking about in the presentations this morning. But the interesting one that is starting to come out again is that that finishing pig mortality actually leads sow farm mortality when we look at a region or we look at season of the year that you that's the data Iowa State's pulling together shows us very nicely now is that finishing pig mortality is going up before sow mor- herd mortality is going up and and disease breaks I should say are happening so disease breaks are happening in the finishing barns before the sow farms so we're dragging those diseases back and then creating too much of a population of virus that then is infecting the sow farms. This is one that that I I, I know is again a very, very difficult one to solve, but we heard an excellent presentation from High Life yesterday about the the packing plants and, and controlling those packing plants because they are an amplifier of disease in our industry. It's because we bring the disease into the plant. It's not their fault. We bring the disease in, and then because we're not careful, we don't clean, we don't wash. When we take the trucks back, we bring those diseases back, and then we move them back down through the system to the farrowing to the house. And really, I, I just, we're not going to get our purrs under control as an industry until we control finishing pig biosecurity and take it seriously. What else do we know? I've heard this several times yesterday and this morning. People are the key. Mortality is really hard on morale. Uh, we know, know that we need to watch our language and our message, and this is one It's a message for me. I'm not a very F-feeling type, but it's it's one that I, I know this, uh, that I, I, I need to be careful how I talk about mortality, how I talk about pigs. I think we all do, that That they're a valuable resource that we need to, to make sure that they are taught, treat them as a baby pig, that they are, and, and not just as an economic unit. And we need technology to focus our labor on high return activities. And this this one, we've we've done some of this as an industry. I mean, going to automated feeding in the Farrow House has been one of the greatest examples of taking people out of that, that task and allowing them to use their time for other things. We need to continue to innovate to get other technologies. And we need to be the advocate for the pig. And I, I know there's a number of you in the audience that do a tremendous job of this. And, and it's, it's one that we need to continue, all of us in the room, become advocates for the pig because the pig can't advocate for itself. Research what we don't know. I'm not going to talk about specific research areas very much. I do want to put some areas in here that we want to thank the farms that do open their doors to us and allow us to conduct large-scale research on mortality. It's been brought up several times that we can't answer these questions in a university setting. We have to do this in large scale in the field. We've got some extremely high quality students. They are limited on their time, too, and have other duties. But getting them into those production systems is not only good for you collecting the, uh, having the data collected in your units, but it's tremendous experiences for those students to be in those units and see what happens firsthand. And for many of them, it's their biggest time that other than an internship that they spend in a unit. Graduate students and undergraduate students are really the key for us in solving a lot of these industry issues because they are the, going to be the leaders of tomorrow, and we, so we need to keep getting them exposed. And then the researchers... In the room, I know a lot of you know this already, but we need to keep partnering with systems to test in these large scale real world situations. The sow prolapse one, Jason Ross has done, I think is a tremendous example. No, we don't have all the answers from that yet, but we've learned a tremendous amount that we didn't know before being able to open up the doors to an awful lot of of, uh, production units around the country. And then the, the discussion on technology to tracking individual pigs. I think we're going to have to do this on a much bigger basis in a lot more farms in order to really understand what's going on with the pigs so that we can track them all the way to market and see where that fallout is at. Then I'll just finish with uh, changing our paradigm. This is one that, again, I'm not a futurist, but I, I keep thinking about this new model of pork production and what should we consider. And I don't know what this model needs to be. But in the past, you think about the things we've reinvented our industry for already. Is I mean, multi-site production, wean to finish, filtered sow farms. You could probably add a number of things on this that where we've really reinvented the way that we produce pigs. In the future, what's it going to look like? I don't know. The, this multi-suckle common creep really interests me, and especially Randy Stacker has approached us a couple times about about doing these farrowing intensive care units. And that, and I've thought about this with multi-suckle common creep. Is that an area where you could have a focused intensive care farrowing facility, and then you move those sows and they're when there's two days oh, piglets are two days old to this multi-suckle common creep room where you don't have all the investment and you handle that like we handle nurseries or finishers today. I mean, there's there's a lot of and then you you can get people hired into that ICU that have more of the skills that we need to, and run the number of sows across them. Those kind of things that we need to think about. The fortress biosecurity we heard yesterday, restricted intake and guilt development. We've heard a lot about how we need to raise our guilts differently. We know if we slow down that, that it, it helps us on longevity, but we continually refuse to do it in the U.S. And that's just, I mean, just an example of where, where we need to think about what, what can we do to, to change the, our paradigms and how we raise pigs.
1: With that, I'll turn it over to Noel. So I'm going to, I think Mike did an excellent job of summarizing. I'm just going to end on a couple of of three different things. One, when it comes to foreign animal disease, I would encourage everybody to run their business knowing that foreign animal disease is most likely on our soil, and you've got to be prepared. We have to be prepared from a business continuity standpoint and a preparation if we go into wartime. And I know we've talked a lot about that, but I think the reality is it's going to happen. You know, Gustavo had a 2035 retirement yesterday in his slide, and it kind of hit me because that's when my last kid graduates from high school. That's kind of my retirement date, too. In my career, it will happen on those shores. I'm convinced of that. And you need I believe that you need to have that in your business plan and in your daily operation. Preparation is going to be key. I really believe that. Secondly, I don't know if Brett's hit, still here. I would put a, a call out to continue this project, the survivability. You know, you talked about the important, and maybe we change the name to sustainability, right? But I think the, the this project has been great. I, I feel honored to be able to participate in it. I think it's been a great project, the collaboration. We're seeing some of the fruits of the results. We're going to continue to have some in the forward. It's not done yet. But I think it's something that we should continue. And just one thing to, to end up on, you know, as is, is Mike talks about the future, and, and I'm not a futurist either. Most scientists aren't changed, trained to be futurists, right? We spend our whole careers trying to mitigate risks, right, whether that be in biosecurity and that, and that creates a type of thinking that keeps us from having some of those futuristic thoughts. So one thing I want to challenge the group is, I would encourage you to get this audio book or read this book. It's called Loonshots, The Science of Generating Crazy Ideas. And what this book does is is talk about the science behind the culture that you have to create as a business to generate crazy ideas. It talks about moonshots far reaching goals, you know, ten thousand or doubling port production by twenty thirty-five or some of the things we talked about. But then it talks about loon shots. And what a loon shot is are those crazy ideas that come to fruition that allow you to achieve that moonshot. And it takes a different mentality. You've got to get out of that risk mitigation mentality and it talks about artists. And artists are the true people that create those crazy ideas. And you got to stop being a risk mitigator to be an ar- artist. I would encourage you to look at that. But the bottom line message is for your business, for your practice, uh, for your farming operation, spend time generating those crazy ideas. It takes a different mentality. It takes a different mindset. It takes time. But for us to achieve the goals that we talked about over the last couple of days, for us to have a sustainable business, to have a license to operate, we've got to spend time. And this is a tremendous group of uh, very committed, very smart people, but we have to spend time generating those crazy ideas. So I'm going to end there, but I would encourage you to look at that. I, I think everybody that uh, on the committee, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of it. And I'll turn it back over to Jason.
3: I hope there's something that you thought about how it can fit into your system, how it can fit into your business, if you support producers, if you support pork production. And I hope you go home with the intention to to implement it. The other thing I said is we have to think differently. And, and I think that's what Noel just, just made that comment too. And, and I hope that you're challenging yourself to think differently. It's not easy. Thinking differently causes uh, requires you to challenge dogma and challenge the way that we're doing things and, and, and really question, are we doing it the right way? And so I hope you go home and, and think about the dogma in your business uh, or those facts that we've accepted as true and challenge them and see what you can do differently. The other thing I'll end with, and, and I, I love quotes. I guess it's just something that I do. I've got behind, on my bulletin board, behind the monitors in my office, I put quotes on this, on pieces of paper and I print it out every so often. When it gets updated, I think I got about three pages of quotes. And so as I was thinking about this conference the last few days, a couple of things, you know, that I've heard, one of, one thing was my baseball coach. He always said, anything worth doing is worth doing right. And I've, so I've just, that just keeps coming to mind, right? How much we do, um, all the stuff that we do in a barn, in the lab, you know, in a conference, anything worth doing is worth doing right. The other thing, a guy named Mark Munoz, when I was in Stillwater, Oklahoma, he, he, I went to the same church as him. He had graduated and was working with John Smith uh, because he was a two-time NCAA champion uh, and wrestled, I think, at 195 or 197, something like that. And I remember him saying one time, you know, the way he approached things, he went on to be an MMA fighter, by the way, and was pretty good at that, too. But I remember Mark one time saying, if you, if you make your weaknesses your strengths, you won't have any weaknesses, So when you think about where our vulnerable points are as an industry and in your business, you know, where where those weaknesses are, consider making those, putting the effort into making those your strengths. The other one, Rick Warren, if you've ever read The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren is uh, one of his quotes is, when it's all said and done, more will be said than done. And that one quite quite honestly resonates when I think about conferences because there's a lot said and how much is going to get done when we leave so keep keep that in mind and then Ralph Waldo Emerson's another one he said an ounce of action is worth a ton of theory and so we can talk about a lot of things but putting something into play is what really is going to make a difference ultimately so an analogy to that is you know I think we had some football analogies in the last couple of days so I'll give another football analogy and could you imagine if you were a coach of a team and you had 100 players on that team you had you know, weight training staff, and you have guys that are drawn up watching film. You got students, you got recruiters, you got, you know, player development, and just all the effort that goes into that. And then you get there on the field, and you got fans, and you run up, and you have the huddle, the center's in the huddle, and the quarterback comes up there and calls the play, and then they walk off the field, right? <laughs> so the point is, we need to be thinking about what plays we have We need to be designing plays, but we need to run the plays. And so that's, I guess, the challenge to everybody in this room, whether you're in academia, whether you're in the industry producing pigs, whether you support producers because you're an allied industry, but find the plays in your playbook and and see how they're changed based on this conference and go run the play.
0: A lot of great information there to take in. And we would challenge all of you listening, whether you attended the conference or not, to think through ideas you're going to hear over the next few months and think through ways you can enact change in the industry. If you did happen to miss the conference, those recordings can all be found at www.piglivability.org. And make sure to hit subscribe right here so you don't miss upcoming episodes, bringing you more information and behind the scenes looks from the International Conference on Pig Survivability. Until next time, I'm Delaney Howell. Thanks for listening to the PigX Podcast. Pig X is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project Partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email IPIC at iastate.edu big x ideas in the swine industry worth sharing